Well, good morning. Before I get started, I want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Actually, it's a bird. So, yes, we, we all see it. We've seen it flitting around. We get to enjoy their choruses and their praises so often, it's nice that he wanted to come enjoy ours. I was encouraged I was reading together with all of us together Psalm 91. It's a, it's a wonderful psalm. I appreciate it as well, Andy, drawing our attention even to the changes in persons there. Um, it's important, and this is one of the things we want to do as we teach and as we instruct, to pay attention to the text. It's actually a grammatical device. For those of you that actually care, it's called analage. For the 99.9% of the rest of you, you can ignore what I just said. But the whole purpose is to draw our attention, is to make an emphasis, is to catch our mind, just like Andy had us do. As we read, let's slow down, let's pay attention. I don't know as well as if you paid attention to what was said and really what was implied and what was said at the end there. For those who love the Lord, those who are his disciples, those who are called by his name, you have a unique privilege to come before him, to offer up praises, and that the God, the creator of this world, would hear our praises, would hear our prayers, and would bend his ear to come near to us, to draw near to us, is a remarkable and a special thing. Something I think is often missed in our, uh, just in our teaching, our understanding, I think we, we don't stop long enough to think about it, is God has, and I was actually reading this this week, God has quite a large unread inbox. If I can use our contemporary email system, he does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. He turns a deaf ear to them. It doesn't mean that God, the purposes and the works of God do not at times align with those prayers, but he does not answer the prayers of those who do not love him. He does not answer the prayer of those who are haters of him. And so we come this morning having offered prayers, having offered prayer, praise, knowing that he hears those prayers and he hears that praise. And that should be comforting. It should be encouraging and it should be sobering. Well, there is, as we have observed over the past few weeks, an almost universal recognition that not only do we need leaders, we need good leaders. But the question is, is what makes a leader good. You're sitting here this morning in church, so you will not be surprised to hear that I'm not really interested in what the world thinks a good leader is. I'm not really interested in the type of leader that's needed for a successful business or to run a country. We're interested in what makes a good leader in the church. And to do that, we need to ask, what is the goal? What is the leader supposed to take us toward, to move us toward? What is the goal that the leaders are seeking to achieve? Have you thought about that before? Okay, we know leaders are important. We know it's important to have good leaders in the church, but why? What is the goal? Why do we even need people to lead us somewhere, and what are they leading us toward? I think Paul expresses it well in terms of the purpose of God for his church when he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 25, saying, 
And using the analogy, the analogy of the husband and wife, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And at another time, Paul expresses the same concept this way to the church that was in Colossae. Saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. Just taking these two verses or these two passages in mind, I think we can say that the goodness, the measure of a leader in the church then is measured by how faithfully he works to accomplish this end. How faithfully he works toward developing a holy and blameless people. Those who bear fruit in every good work, who are filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, who are increasing in the knowledge of God, being continually washed by the word. Well, that's the goal. That's the expectation. But how do we find leaders who can do this? Do we start casting lots again? Do we put persons in place and hope for the best? Should we, like, Israel of old looked to the world around us and tried to find a leader like them? Someone who is a visionary, charismatic, decisive, and strong? Well, most of you have been with us for some, if not all, of these past four weeks, and you know the answer is no. No to each of those. You know that not only did God provide the goal to which leaders are to help lead the church, but he also provided the pattern for identifying the men in the church who should be leading. It's God who's at work in their lives, raising up these leaders, and it's the church's job to identify them and to identify them according to the pattern we find. And we find that pattern spelled out perhaps most explicitly in two places, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And we've been primarily in 1 Timothy 3, but doing a little bit of back and forth where we see some of these characteristics overlap. But through it all, we've been looking at these characteristics through the lens of a shepherd. Because these leaders, called elders or overseers, are, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, to shepherd the flock of God. The shepherding this care, this concern, is the packaging that contains all of the other characteristics and attributes of a leader of the church. And these specific characteristics, these attributes, are found most clearly in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, as we've said, though you're going to find them sprinkled throughout the New Testament. And our prayer as we work through these attributes, through these characteristics, is that we use them as an objective standard, not a subjective one, but an objective one, one that is outside of us for measuring future and current leaders of the church. So let's pray together. Pray for the Spirit's guidance, for His work in helping us to understand, for His conviction in helping us to stand by the principles we find in Scripture as we look for these leaders and we hold them accountable.
Father, we do thank you this morning as we gather together, as we come before you. We give you thanks that you hear our prayers. That because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can so freely enter. We thank you that those who are called according to your name, called according to your purpose, those who love you, that you give them an audience. But there's no cue. You hear each of us every single time we come before you. You bend your ear to listen. Father, hear our prayer this morning. Hear our prayer as we ask you to help guide us, to instruct us, to teach us, to lead us into truth. As we desire to wash ourselves with the water of your word, as we desire to look into it and gain insight into your mind and your understanding, as we desire to understand rightly and apply rightly the standard you have in Scripture, certainly for what you would expect of leaders of your precious church, your bride. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 3, you'll see where we left off at the end of verse 3, beginning in verse 4, and you'll notice there in verses 4 through 5, both a requirement of character and unique to this list, uniquely, we find an explanation of why this particular character is important, at least a brief one. In that sense, more time is spent on this characteristic than any other. And we read there in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, He, that is the leader of the church, the shepherd, the elder, the overseer, all the same term, he must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I remember in my teens or maybe in early 20s, a friend of mine was at a grocery store and he was shopping. And on the other aisle, so he couldn't even see it. He was listening. He was eavesdropping. On the other aisle, there was a child, a not a toddler, a little bit older child, throwing a tantrum speaking back to their mom or dad or their parent, yelling and screaming at them, completely out of control. After a couple of minutes of this, it was too much for my friend, and he shouted over the aisle, spank your child, it won't kill him. Now, I'm fairly confident that was not the best way to handle the situation. It likely did not edify or actually help the parent at that time. But it is interesting and true that the manner in which a man treats his wife as well as his children and the behavior of those children and his wife, those children who are in the home, it communicates a great deal about him, doesn't it? We talk about first impressions or impressions when you meet someone and a family gives you an impression about the parents. How children behave gives you an impression about the father. How a wife treats her husband gives you an impression about the man. And it gives us an impression, good or bad, about the type of life he leads, orderly or disorderly, away from the public eye. Chrysostom, that early church pastor and father, noted 
that even in the secular world, there was a saying that one who is a good manager of his house will be a good statesman. That is one who can govern the affairs of the country. Alexander Strauch points out that the key measurement when evaluating a man's management of his household is his children's behavior. And so Paul requires that he keep his children under control with all dignity. Now the phrase all dignity is pretty important here. And there's a question of whether it refers to the behavior the children should have. In other words, the children are dignified or the manner in which the father is to manage. The management of the father is dignified. Well, I didn't like either of those solutions. So as I dug in, the more I looked at it, I really would suggest that it doesn't have to be an either or. But rather, it is the overall nature of the relationship between the father and the children. The father is dignified in how he treats the children. The response of the children is dignified as well. The overall nature is marked as one that is honorable, that is respectful. In other words, the manner in which the father administers is not one where he roars and thunders about and uses threats or physical violence to bring about obedience. Rather, it's a picture like that which Paul describes. In 1 Thessalonians 2.11, when he says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. It's fun seeing some of these passages, how they actually teach a lot about parenting. And you notice what is missing there, right? It's the shouting. It's the exertion of force. Instead, what Paul describes there, when he says, as a father would his own children, closely resembles the manner in which a shepherd earns the trust of and leads and cares for his sheep. The very same character that should be found in a shepherd or elder of the church. In order that the children would respond in a respectful or dignified manner. Children, especially young children, mirror their parents. They imitate their parents. A dignified response by a father will often, not always, but often elicit a more dignified response from a child. The proverb is true, and it's not just with child rearing that a soft answer turns away wrath. In Ephesians 6.4, Paul tells the Ephesians, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it doesn't mean that children will never be angry, or at times they won't show anger. But parents, fathers, you are not to grab the poker and sinfully stir the fire, and either purposefully or through sinful behavior, stir up the anger and bitterness of children. Know your children. Understand your children. And when a parent does sin, they should be quick to repent in an effort to douse the flames of anger. And to summarize, I'll note again something that Alexander Strauch says in his book entitled Biblical Eldership. A book, by the way, would be a great resource for all of you just to have on your shelves, even if it's just for reference. And he says of the elder, and again, remember, elders, leaders, shepherds of the church, they are to be the example that we are all to pursue. 
that we're all to look to follow. They're a concrete example of these abstract ideas that are provided in Scripture. So when you read these, you don't get to check out. He says, a responsible Christian father, husband, and household manager, he must be, and he must have a reputation for providing for his family financially, emotionally, and spiritually. And the nature, I would add, of that relationship should be one that is dignified, it is respectful, it is honoring toward one another. We'll look in a moment at the similar requirement of an elder from Titus Chapter 1, verse 6. But first, I want to draw a couple of additional observations about what this characteristic of an elder does not mean with regard to what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 3. It is not saying, as some have suggested, that a man cannot serve as an elder until his children are fully grown so that there is an opportunity to see what the end result of their character is. Notice that Paul says, those that are within his household, they are still in his household, still at home. Right on the heels of that, and really helping to make this point, Paul is also not saying that a man must have children to be an elder. Otherwise, what would you do when the children are grown and outside of the home? Does a man stop being an elder? Kind of defies the whole word itself of elder. I mean, what would you do also with texts like 1 Corinthians 7, 8, which encourages those who are not married to remain unmarried if there's no desire for marriage? And so this is really just recognizing that in general, not absolutely, but in general, the men who lead the churches will have families. The men that God is raising up in general will have children. Not always, but in general. And as such, they will be a remarkable barometer of their capacity for spiritual leadership. Well, now we reach the more difficult part of this morning. And it's the similar requirement in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it reads, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Perhaps you already see the conundrum, but let's wade into this and wait a moment before we get to the hard stuff. We'll start with the easier part, which is the end, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I'm going to work backwards. Rebellion. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a child who is characterized by an unwillingness and refusal to submit to authorities. Whether at home, whether in the church, whether in the world, it is a child in the home that it's not that they struggle with submission and sometimes don't obey right away, but rather one that refuses to submit. That's the pattern, is a refusal to submit. And again, I do believe this pertains to children within the household, but here in Titus, it likely is referring, or at least it's likely that Paul has in view a little bit older children. Especially when you read the next one, dissipation, or the previous one, working backwards. The type of living envisioned with dissipation would bring to mind older children. And we briefly looked at this term last week and noted that the term dissipation, often translated as debauchery, is used of shamelessness, of recklessness, of wasteful living, of excess and sensual pleasures, often including drunkenness. 
And even the world recognizes the negative and destructive effects of drunkenness or dissipation and debauchery. Aristotle himself, far from being a believer, noted that people with this vice are prodigals who waste their substance and are in the path of ruination of their own lives. By comparison, a father must demonstrate that through his shepherding and the managing of his family and the leading of his children, that this type of behavior is not tolerated or found while the child is living in his home. That no child is characterized by this type of behavior. And a child that is characterized by these things, and again, not a one-time event, not a struggle to submit, but a refusal, one that has these patterns would be reason for a father to wait, or if already an elder, to step away for a time, from shepherding. And part of the reason for doing this is so that he can have the time to focus on that primary priority and to care for his family, to take care of his children or that child specifically, who, if we can go back to our study in Matthew, has become the most needy child, has become the greatest child because they need the most attention to help shepherd them back in line to help instruct them and show them how they are hurting themselves and more importantly, condemning themselves to hell. And as Paul noted in 1 Timothy, there's another reason for this requirement and it's that the father who has not led and shepherded his family in this matter should not lead and shepherd the church. The unruly children will be a distraction from shepherding. They'll eat up too much of his time, pull him away too much, and likewise call into question his ability to shepherd the people of God. If even the world recognizes that someone who can't manage their own home shouldn't be leading, then certainly in the church where the standard and, the, and what's at stake is so much more important, we would expect to have this standard and this expectation. This is a high expectation, and it's a hard one, as any parent knows, and it's only accomplished through prayer, tears, long days, and long nights, and even after all that, all is said and done, when it comes to the salvation of their children, that's still outside of their control. I mean, every parent knows, with weeping and heart-wrenching anguish, that you can't make your child a believer and a follower of God. Because if it is possible, even if it meant the loss of a limb or the loss of life, every parent who loves their child would do it in a heartbeat. No matter how faithfully they shepherd their children and how obedient and mild-mannered that children may behave, in other words, they may fall under children who are dignified, who respond well, who are respectful, who are submissive, even then, that child may not be saved. And that leads us to the more difficult or perhaps more controversial aspect of this requirement from Titus. Again, your New American Standard, if you have that, reads, having children who believe. And the word believe here, or pista in the Greek text, it's an adjective here, is from the root pistos, meaning belief or faith. You may have an English Standard version, which says, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
Maybe you have the NIV, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Or you might have the New King James and read, having faithful children, not believing, but faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Or the New English translation, faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. Or the Holman Christian Standard, having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. Obviously, there is some disagreement over whether the term pista here means faithful or believing. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if this requirement means, one, that children must, in fact, be believers in Jesus Christ, that is, children who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ in order for their father to be an elder, then it rules out a whole bunch of persons. In fact, if I were to press this logically, it would mean that any elder at any time is capable of being disqualified if at any time down the road a child is determined to be an unbeliever. So you can see the conundrum. The other option is it means something more general by the term faithful. But if that's the case, we need to understand what is it saying. So is there a clear answer? I believe there is. And because this is somewhat controversial, and you're likely to encounter it elsewhere if you look in the requirements of an elder from Titus, we're going to spend a few minutes digging in. If you have some of those common study Bibles, you're going to find that I disagree with a couple of persons who I love and respect. Now, I'm going to spend three or four minutes talking about grammar, and I hear the groans inwardly and outwardly. But I know several children here are learning how to diagram sentences and work through parts of speech. So I'm going to see if you children can follow along and catch some of these terms. Then you help your parents who are sitting next to you. When pistos is used as a modifier or an adjective, it most often carries with it the meaning of faithful or trustworthy. So right off the get-go, not exclusively, but frequently, when pistos is used as an adjective like it is here, it is translated as faithful or trustworthy. In fact, 82% of the time, or 52 out of 63 uses in the Greek New Testament, it is translated as faithful or trustworthy in the New American Standard. Here in Titus 1.6, like I said, it is an adjective. It's modifying the children. The children are either believing or as it would have been translated 82%, actually a little more than that, of the rest of the time, they are faithful or trustworthy. And when we dig in even closer and take an even closer look at the grammar, we find that this grammatical construction where you have an adjective that is further modified by what is called a dative prepositional phrase. I'm losing you, hold on. But it's a prepositional phrase that is usually uses an in, it's in this or uh, by this. That when it's translated, when it's further modified by a dative prepositional phrase, it always is translated and carries the meaning of faithful or trustworthy. For example, Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in a very little thing, in other words, that in a very little thing is that further modifying his faithfulness. First Corinthians, or actually, there's more to that passage in Luke 16.10. It says, Then he is faithful also in much. 
1 Corinthians 4, 17. Who is my beloved and faithful child? Child being modified by pista. In the Lord. Ephesians 6.21, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. You see that in the, that prepositional phrase is modifying that adjective, pista, making it every time faithful, trustworthy, faithful, trustworthy, faithful, trustworthy. Or 1 Timothy 3.11, just a little bit further down in your Bibles. Speaking of leaders of the church in different capacities, faithful in all things. Now, if you've got your Bible open or you flip back to Titus 1.6, you look at it and say, well, there's a problem here. There's no prepositional phrase. Well, there's not in the English. You're right. It's missing your preposition like in, at, on, about, among, around, at, before, between, behind, by, all those prepositions. But in the Greek text, not accused of dissipation or rebellion is actually a prepositional phrase. It just sounds really awkward in English. If I were to translate it very woodenly, very Literally, it would translate something like children, these pista children, not in the state of being accused of dissipation or rebellion. And so you have that prepositional phrase. You've got the not there, but other than that, it's, it's a prepositional phrase. It's a dative prepositional phrase. And again, it just sounds awkward in English, so we leave it out. The preposition, that is. But every other time... The word pistos or pista is translated as an adjective with a prepositional phrase using in. It is always faithful or trustworthy. That's the grammar. Take a sigh of relief, pat yourself on the back, you survived. But there's more than that. Because if we accept for a moment that the translation should be faithful or trustworthy, it starts to make a little more sense and is explained by 1 Timothy 3, 4. Because in 1 Timothy 3, the list of qualifications is clear that the main idea is the behavior of the children, not their spiritual condition. Is the spiritual condition important? Absolutely. But with regard to the qualifications of the elder, the overseer, the shepherd, it's the behavior. It's, to a certain extent, what the father can control that is in view. And so, too, I believe here in Titus, Paul is instructing these new churches in Crete to identify men who have children whose behavior demonstrates a shepherding in the homes that will carry over into the shepherding of believers in the church. They are faithful children, those who respect their parents, and as a pattern, are characterized as obedient in the home, and that there exists a dignified relationship between father and children. I think Paul's saying the exact same thing two different ways. And so, while there is a slight chance that Paul is using this term in a way that it's used nowhere else to describe children with saving faith, it is highly unlikely. Grammatically, it would be completely out of line with every other use of this term in the New Testament when used as an adjective modified by a dative preposition. Contextually, it would be the only characteristic in all of the lists of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that is completely outside of the control of the potential elder. Every other character quality is within the control of the elder. But the salvation of his children is not something he can control. And theologically, while it would not contradict 1 Timothy 3, neither would it parallel it. 
and it would be adding a whole new requirement and standard around the spiritual salvation of elders' children. And then it leads and opens the door to a whole bunch of questions, and I think problems, about how long do they have to show that they were saved? What happens if an elder children later show unbelief and they were never saved to begin with, does that mean he's always been disqualified from ministry? It's a bunch of interesting and problematic questions that begin to arise. Now, we don't come to a conclusion because it's easy. And that's why we start with the, started with the grammar and the language and work our way to the context, work our way to the theology, and then we can look at the problems. Well, we've spent a lot of time on this characteristic of the family of a man who would shepherd and lead the church. And that's because it's one of the clearest indications of what his leadership in the church is going to look like. Will it be loving? Will it be characterized by exhorting, by patience, by pleading, by gentleness, by shepherding? Or will it be exasperating, domineering, brutish, and forceful? I would say this is particularly important with younger elders who haven't had and been able to go through life as long. You need more signs, more examples of what they look like. I think that God provides that in their families. Is the overall relationship in the family one that is dignified because the father sets the tone for how he communicates and leads? And now the question for you, actually the instruction for you, is to look carefully at the families of men who will lead and are leading the church. Ask to come into their homes. Ask to talk to their children, to their wives. Get to know them. Spend time with them so that you can see what this relationship is like. And far from being defensive, a leader, a shepherd, should welcome that. Because they love that you love the church that much. But also do it like the Bereans in Acts, who, when they heard the things from Paul, they were going to check it out, but how did they check it out? Eagerly, excitedly, enthusiastically, not with a critical spirit where, all right, I'm coming in with my notepad, I'm gonna find out how much is wrong. But do it with eagerness, with excitement. And then encourage, if you can, the elder, the shepherd, or a potential shepherd or elder in that way. Leaders in the church need encouragement just as much as you do. Well, there are two more characteristics left in our list here in 1 Timothy. We'll tackle one more of them this morning. Not a new convert. On the one hand, that's pretty cut and dry, a pretty cut and dry prohibition. An elder must not be a new convert. Again, as Strauch notes, no matter how spiritual, zealous, knowledgeable, or talented a new convert may be, he is not spiritually mature. Maturity requires time and experience for which there is no substitute. So a new convert is simply not ready for the arduous task of shepherding God's flock. Now, it's important to note, especially for those of you that may be newer in the faith, there is nothing wrong or sinful about being a new convert. It just means they're not ready, that man is not ready to lead and shepherd the church. 
A friend of mine who has been a lawyer for somewhere around 30 years noted that when law students graduate and pass the bar and join most firms, most of these firms, at least those of any size, will not let these newly minted lawyers anywhere near a case. They keep them as far away from the cases as possible and bury them with the books in the back. And so they learn how to write briefs, they learn how to research, they mirror and they shadow lawyers who have done it for years in order to mature and avoid many of the mistakes they would otherwise make. Similarly, new believers need time to learn from and imitate and follow seasoned and mature believers in order to prepare for the craftiness of the enemy And for the shepherd, that he is not vulnerable to pride and temptation and so many other sins. This allows time so that the new convert might develop wisdom. You know, there's a big distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom goes far beyond knowledge. It requires knowledge, but it is not in and of itself knowledge. It's much more than that. It's one thing to have a freshly minted seminary graduate who can rattle off an abundance of facts. It's another thing entirely to have a man who has applied that knowledge in fires and trials of life. Wisdom comes through time. It comes through the application of wisdom. I'm sorry, the application of knowledge in life. It also gives other members of the church time to get to know the man and evaluate his character against the rest of the qualifications of an elder and a shepherd. We still have a problem though, right, don't we? Practically speaking, if I were to come up to you and ask you, when is someone not a new convert, what would you say? I mean, there's no stated timeline. I mean, it would have been a lot easier if Paul had just said they have to be a believer for at least two years. Why not more specific? Why not something like that? Well, it's because some men and this is true of believers in general, will be forced to mature much quicker than others through the trials the Lord brings. Others need time to marinate. Some will already be further along in life as well. And the Spirit will use even their new knowledge and their newer salvation. I should say newer because it's not a new convert. Maybe it's two, three, four, five years. But it's an older man. Someone who can then apply all of the experiences of life to this newfound knowledge. Do it retroactively. And learning in Christ to redeem many of those past circumstances and turn them into wisdom. I was a perfectionist growing up and still have that tendency. I remember one time we went to a Christmas craft event. I think it was at Michael's or something like that. And they would hold it for children. And we were painting these sweaters. And they give you all the paints and they set them out. After 10, 15 minutes or so, I got paint right on the side. It was nowhere near where it was supposed to be. I made a mistake, got paint. I was angry. I wanted to give up. Um, I thought I had absolutely ruined the shirt. And that's the old life. No matter how hard we try, in our flesh, we are going to mess up. We are going to sin. Even the best that we do is filthy rags. 
But then the person leading the craft came along, calmed me down, took my mistake, and made it part of the craft, redeemed my errors. In a much greater way, this is what the Spirit does. He comes alongside. He begins to take those errors of the past for new believers and use them for God's glory. Now, time is still needed. But for someone who is further along in life, it may happen a little bit quicker because they've already had some of that seasoning. By the way, this is really an appropriate place to pause this morning because there may be some here that have made many, many mistakes. You've sinned gravely against God and you have never repented. Maybe you are not even that old. Maybe you still live in your parents' home, but you are angry, you lie, you deceive, or you're sinning in some other way. Maybe it's far worse than anything I've stated. There's three truths, it's really much more than that, but three truths that you need to hear this morning. One, the most foolish thing you can do this morning is walk out of here choosing to continue sinning against God. Yeah, you're a sinner. But the danger of hell is very real for you because of that. And God will punish sin if you do not repent and cry out to him to save you from that sin. And you need to hear this too. Secondly, that God didn't die for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, for the sinners. For the liar, the one caught in sexual sin, the alcoholic, the proud, the angry, the disobedient to parents, even the murderer, who, by the way, Paul was. The power of the cross is remarkable. When you confess your sins and turn to God, crying out for his mercy, he not only will not turn you away, but he will begin to transform your life and use even your past mistakes in ways you cannot imagine. Are there still going to be pains? Are there still consequences? Likely. But what was all bad, God begins to work for good. And if that describes you this morning, then please come find myself. Grab one of the persons you may have spoken to this morning or maybe grab your parent. We want nothing more than for you to know the grace and mercy of God and the transformation he does in the life of sinners. Well, we're not quite done answering the question I first asked, though, are we? When is someone not a new convert if Scripture is not explicit? All I've done is muddy the waters a bit more. I've waded in and it's dirty downstream. Well, this is where the church, its members, as well as existing leadership are a blessing. This is where they exercise wisdom and discernment collectively in determining when a man has sufficiently matured. They will consider his life and his actions. And by the way, this is important to say, a man being told to wait or not yet, that is a blessing. That is a blessing for the church and it is a blessing for that man. You do not take a child that cannot swim and make them a lifeguard. It is not safe for those swimming, and it's certainly not safe for the child. The moment they try to jump in and help, now they're both going to drown. I would also offer this. I do not think it is an accident that the New Testament church maintained the term elder, carried over from the Hebrew zakain, meaning 
grayed or bearded one. I don't think that the term is completely void of any connotation of age. I believe it generally, though perhaps not exclusively, describes an older man because time combined with discipline and godliness yields wisdom. Now, how old? Well, it talks about having children in the home, so that's for the church to determine. It's a matter for each local church to spend time to carefully and prayerfully walk through, but they must do it carefully and diligently. We've covered a lot of character qualities the past several weeks. As we close this morning, I again want us to turn the attention inward. As we've reminded ourselves several times throughout this study, leaders are to set the example, but all are to pursue and work toward these qualities. It's not just leaders who are to manage their own households well. And it's not just leaders who are to love their wives, lovingly lead their children, and raise them in dignity. I want to give you a couple of practical ways to work on this. Husbands, fathers, when's the last time you sat down with your wife and asked you to rate, asked her to rate you? To provide a feedback. How am I doing in these biblical areas? What am I doing well in? What am I doing poor in? Maybe it's helpful to use a scale of 1 to 10 so it's not too devastating. But wives, use it as an opportunity to encourage. Encourage where they're doing well. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of humility to come and ask that. And don't use it as a bashing session. Oh, good, finally, now I've got the opportunity. I've been waiting for him to ask where I can show him all the ways he's wrong. Remember, the Lord is gracious to us and does not do that to us and reveal all of our inadequacies and our sins and our guilt and our failures at the same time. We would never stand back up. And wives, you need to do the exact same thing. You need to go to your husband and ask, how am I doing with our children? How am I doing in our family? Ask for feedback. And husbands, likewise, Use it as an opportunity to encourage first. Make sure that your words, as they are, are seasoned with salt. I'm sorry, seasoned with grace. Salt is the seasoning. Seasoned with grace. Otherwise, you're a, ganging, a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. What does that mean? It means you can't hear through the noise. You can't hear through the noise of the lack of love. We need to develop transparency in our marriages, in our families, amongst one another. And what this means as well is that fathers and husbands, we're to sacrifice and care for our families. It's one thing to say it, but it means that our family's needs always come before our own, not just when we feel like it. It means our time is not our own. And with regard to not being a new convert, well, if you are younger in the faith, work to become older and wiser. And really, that's an admonition even for the older saints among us. We continue. We never stop growing. We never stop learning. On the drive-in this morning, I was talking to Shiloh and Nora and 
we were, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but it was Adam's age, which is 930 years, in case you want to know. I got it wrong. I was off by five years. And we were talking about how in this life we, we, you know, if you live a long life, it's 80 to 90 years old, somewhere in there. And how amazing it must have been to continue to go beyond that, to reach 100, 200, 300, not even be a third of the way through your life and still be learning, still be growing. If it took Adam 930 years and he still didn't learn it all, we're not going to get there. So don't stop. Keep learning, keep growing. Develop godly disciplines and habits. Invite persons into your life to help evaluate. Begin following persons, imitating them, mirroring them. Ask those around you what they think of you, where you can be growing. And our prayer is that the Lord will continue to raise up godly men to lead not only Canton Bible Church, but all of the churches of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Once again, these are sobering reminders and hard things. The standard is very high, but it shows how much you love the church and care for her, that you don't make it easy. You don't just put anyone into leadership. Would we be faithful to apply this standard to the leadership of Canton Bible? And we pray that churches around this country and world would have that same conviction. If they aren't doing it, to begin doing it. For those that are, to excel still more. We thank for your help in this. For us, help us to grow in all of these characteristics, to excel in these spiritual disciplines. May we one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.